for the same amount of strain, you know, overall for that workout, the stress is significantly higher in the middle of in the, in the middle around threshold. So so whilst it might feel more satisfying to do, you know, lots and lots of sweet spot work, um, the reality is that the time that you need to recover from that, you know, is going to be more significant. The Triathlon Show 226. Up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, it's my great pleasure to welcome David Tilbury Davis back to the podcast. For longtime listeners, David has been a guest on twice before, and he is a coach from the United Kingdom, having been in the coaching space for 25 years or so, working with both professional and age group athletes, helping them to multiple national and even world championship titles, as well as a large number of wins and podiums in various races across the globe. And uh, many of you listeners will probably already know that uh, David coaches uh, Lionel Sanders. That's uh, definitely the most uh, recognizable name on his roster of athletes. And uh, you might even have seen David recently on Lionel's YouTube channel, where uh, he has been featuring in, in some videos. This interview with David is slightly different from the other ones in that uh, now David is actually uh, not just a podcast guest, but he is uh, my coach. Uh, we started working together in November 2019, and knowing how many requests he gets for his coaching services, I would consider myself very, very lucky to be in that position. And I also think that the fact that we now know each other well and uh, have discussed training a lot together, that uh, really comes through in some of the discussions we have on uh, in these two episodes, because this will be a two-part interview, where this episode, episode 26, is more about David's uh, perspectives on the training in general, so relevant for really for anybody that listens to the podcast. Uh, but uh, next episode, next week, will be specifically geared towards coaches, and we will discuss uh, his perspectives on various topics related around coaching that is not just how do you program, how do you uh, prescribe sessions and so on, but more philosophical questions as well around coaching. But that is for next week. Uh, let's uh, get on with uh, this, these training perspectives right after we thank our sponsors, Precision Hydration. You can find them on precisionhydration.com and uh, the best place probably to start getting to know them is by taking their uh, free sweat test on the website. It says free hydration plan in the website menu and that test consists of a quiz of 10 or so questions that uh, you can answer and then as an output you'll get an estimate for your sweat sodium content and an idea of how much sodium you, you might need to replace if you are racing, for example, in particular in longer and hotter races where electrolyte replenishment uh, may become pretty significant uh, for not really finding that your performance goes down the drain. 
And uh, precision hydration products products are electrolytes that you can buy in different concentrations so that you can match the sodium content of uh, your individual uh, sweat. So that is the whole idea behind precision hydration. It's a great, great, great idea and works really well. I really like to use their products and I generally go for the, the pretty concentrated stuff because that's just the way my sweat is. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. As many of you will know, although Roka has now branched out into many different product categories, wetsuits is where it all started for them. And uh, this might be actually something that is uh, quite pertinent for the current situation that we're in with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we discussed with James on Thursday's Q&A episode, for some of you, open water swimming might be an option. And uh, that means obviously needing a wetsuit. You might already have one, but if the water is pretty cold, then perhaps you would consider getting a thermal wetsuit. And that is something that Roka do offer so that you can potentially get into the open water in uh, in much cooler water temperatures than you would otherwise do. If you do, please be safe. Have somebody with you to monitor you and uh, make sure that you take all precautions as you should always do with with open water swimming. Whether it's a thermal wetsuit or something else like their new Max Buoyancy wetsuit, a new piece of uh, tri-suit or new pair of sunglasses that you're looking for, you can get 20% off your entire order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with David Tilbury Davis. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, or welcome back, David. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad, Michaela. Are you in lockdown? Um, we closed our borders uh, today, and I live in Helsinki, Finland, for those people that um, don't know. We closed our borders today. Um, schools are closed. Um, people over 70 have been advised to self-isolate and not come into contact with other people so it's yeah interesting times we'll see how things evolve i think at the moment we have certainly yesterday it was about 300 cases on the 16th of march so um but the expectation is it it probably you know is 30 times as much was the president's comment in the media yesterday that it could be as high as 30 times as much due to sort of the amount tested yeah, and I follow the situation in Finland as closely as I follow the one in Portugal, <laughs> being from Finland. So, uh, so yes, I knew the situation before asking, but yeah. uh, it's uh, good to get some context for the listeners. Uh, for some more context, you've been on the show before, but can you give a brief background of uh, you as a coach and uh, where you come from and that sort of thing? Absolutely. I, um, I've been coaching... Uh, since sort of 1995, 96. Um, and over the years, um, have been based in the UK, have been based in Spain, been based in the US. And now I have a young family. I'm based in Finland. Um, and predominantly uh, work remotely, but also travel quite a bit to work with clients face to face and, and, um, from my perspective, have taken a position of, you know, just coaching a handful of athletes 
globally uh, myself and, and and that's it so I kind of keep it simple um, and just try to you know make people uh, the best athletes they're capable of being whether they're professional or age group yeah perfect and uh, I've mentioned this in the intro but you don't know that so uh, just so that you are aware um, uh, I am one of those uh, lucky athletes that, uh, that's <laughs> you, that. you, you are indeed yeah you're lucky or yeah. unlucky I'm not sure depending on the training sessions yeah yeah uh this morning wasn't too bad uh, i had, had a pool open still and, and it was uh it was a solid solid swim but uh but manageable so let's get into uh, the topics that we have uh, for today and first if you can describe your general philosophy on on coaching and training yeah absolutely i, I think um i uh, i i come at the the approach of helping athletes be better athletes by trying to understand them as individuals, trying to understand their sort of athletic age, so to speak, um, their athletic background, um, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, where they want to go, you know, with an increasing level of fitness. You know, some people it's that they want to uh, do a personal best um over a certain distance other people it's they want to you know qualify for certain events other people want to get on a podium um and other people want to be world champions um but uh but but certainly the philosophy in all of those individuals is typically very much the same um there's a, a very high level of internal drive to just be the best that they're capable of being and so that really um you know i reflect that in in how i coach um i take a position of trying to sort of persistently stay on top of you know research and knowledge in terms of sort of physiological development technical development coaching skill sets coaching athlete interactions um anything basically anything that impacts on performance um i'm paying attention to stroke interested in and and then you know as somebody quaintly put it trying to then be the bs filter for athletes because there's certainly times when you know i get approached by a product provider or an, an equipment manufacturer in there and they are, you know trying to explain that this is the the best thing since sliced bread and um i have to sort of um filter that for athletes so on a bit of a, a side note here, but uh, are there any things, any piece of technology or things like that that you have seen in the last few years that has not been, uh, that, that you have actually been convinced by that you think is really, really something that can help athletes reach a new performance level in among those things that you, you have been approached with, for example, or just seen in general come out to market? Um. I mean, I think off the top of my, I mean, I could probably name a couple of things which I think it would not be unreasonable to say have uh, or can impact on the efficacy with which people can train and, and perform. I think I think heart rate variability is is one. Um, the ease of wit with which you know athletes nowadays can monitor that um is really a great way for for folks to to understand what you know what is the systemic stress on their body um 
because there's you know i i don't uh disagree that that subjective sort of assessment of um workouts is is valuable and meaningful but the reality is that there can typically be a bias in there from an athlete you know some people you know like to do high intensity things uh, some people like to do long slow distance things and um you know some people like to do very detail orientated sessions some people like it to be very sort of autonomous um and and you know that can be reflected in that subjective assessment of that workout so you know perception of effort has its place heart rate has its place power has its place but i think when you're trying to understand sort of systemic stress on the body whether it's the training or whether it's you know having you know a rough time with one's partner or whether it's work stress or whether it's um you know being concerned over the current climate um you know that that's a very useful tool um you know much like you know uh, a screwdriver in a you know in a in a toolkit you know it's it but it's it's definitely useful yeah going back to the coaching philosophy then um perhaps you can just give an overview of uh, what does the routine work look like when you're working with an athlete perhaps not when you're starting out but when you actually know the athlete a bit better what goes into sort of applying your philosophy or not your plan your your ideas for how to improve the athlete's performance and uh, yeah how does that play out in the real world to give uh, the listeners an idea from just sitting down and thinking about assessing previous workouts or benchmark tests and uh, then thinking about how to how to improve from that and uh, anything that goes goes into into the stages in between absolutely i mean i think a, a simplistic way to look at it would be to say that probably 80 percent of you know how i structure um workouts and sort of training development frameworks is very much grounded in uh sort of an evidence-led approach you know my you know my understanding of physiology my experience of coaching um you know in a practical sense and 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 just knowing that you know you can only do b after you've done a and then c after you've done b kind of thing um but then probably another 15% is um with the type of individuals that I work with is is kind of pushing the boat out a little bit and and really just sort of you know just trying to find the sort of the limit of development um without pushing people over the edge um and then you know I'd probably not unreasonably say that probably sort of the last 5% is just you know ultimately a little bit of guesswork of um just looking at you know novel approaches or novel stimulus to to help athletes develop yeah with the 80% that uh, you described first is that uh, do you have specific uh, periodization structures or sequencing of types of work that you that go into that 80% that you refer to or or what specifically is it that you uh, refer to there Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it depends on the individual circumstances. So I think you know the the sort of cohort of individuals I work with is typically training anywhere between sort of fifteen to 
15, 16 to sort of 25 to 27 hours a week. Um, and as a consequence, I, I would just, you know, openly admit that that biases that approach a little bit. So as a consequence, um, I, I do look to develop people in sort of specific blocks of work. Um, at a high level, you would probably describe that as sort of very initially very sort of you know quality of movement orientated um and then a block of very uh sort of intensity orientated and then a final block of very sort of race specific orientation now the lengths of those blocks and the minutiae of those blocks depends on the individual depends on the race schedule um depends on where we are in the season um, depends on the racing demands but but that's sort of the overarching principle um is is that grounded in um uh, what we understand in terms of the best way to develop uh, athletes physiologically um there's probably some differences there certainly the science says if you're trying to develop threshold you should probably focus on threshold for sort of eight to twelve weeks um in my experience what I found is that because long distance triathlon is such a unique sport, um, there really isn't any other sport where, you know, certainly you take the context of Ironman where athletes are operating at the sort of the upper limit of their ability um, for, you know, anywhere between sort of seven and a half to 15 hours. There's, there's no other sport that places such a huge amount of duress on the body. And, and as a consequence, um, the, the training demands of that are incredibly unique. So, you know, yes, we can, we can look at what people do in long distance swimming. We can look at what people do in marathon training. You know, we can look at what people do in, in, uh, you know, long distance time, uh, time trialing and cycling, but, um, the the actual sort of the, the sort of the interlacing of the three um places such a unique demand that um from a training perspective you, you just you can't ignore that you can't you know train the swim as a swimmer and the bike as a biker and the run as a runner um and so from a structure point of view with my athletes whilst i accept that you know there might be better approaches if you were just trying to develop one thing i have to think about the fact that we're trying to develop three sports at the same time um, and and I need to factor into that that places a unique sort of cognitive demand on athletes um, and you know unique recovery demands and, and do you think that uh, you can develop all three disciplines? simultaneously or do you think about them in terms of perhaps one or even two being more in maintenance mode while trying to focus on on one or two disciplines for improvement i think it's contextual i think you know the swim most athletes can can push quite hard in the swim up to a certain point i think somebody that is a fairly good swimmer and um, maybe has a little bit of a swim background um, would probably find sort of you know pushing quite hard in the swim in the context of triathlon is is you know doesn't take that too much out of them whereas if it's somebody that is an adult onset swimmer and is really trying to develop their ability to sort of maintain their technique you know for a long period of time uh, you know under sort of a sustained amount of power um 
they might struggle with a really sort of long, hard workout. So um, there's some context there with the swim, but I'd say the swim, typically you can do a, a little more intensity than the other two sports. And then again, coming back to that word of context, um, you know, with the run, um, you know, if I have an athlete that weighs 55 kilograms, you know, they're the amount of running intensity that they can do um, almost certainly differs from the amount of running intensity that a sort of 78 kilogram athlete can do. That's just basic physics. Um, So, um, uh, so then you come to the bike and say, okay, well, the bike is sort of, you know, non weight bearing. It's kind of very much sort of, it's a closed energy system. You know, you've got these sort of three contact points, um, you're stabilized in gravity. Um, so then it becomes, you know, very much about sort of developing the cardiovascular system. And then, um, you know, one, uh, for most people, you know, uh, you can do a reasonable amount of intensity with the bike at the same time that you're doing it in the other two sports. Um, but it's also probably the one where, you know, the longer the sessions get, the more sort of neurological fatigue that you get in the lower limbs um and 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 just generally within the body and so that can then impact on the swim um so there's always you know different factors to consider with different athletes and what are some key highlights in terms of how you need to think differently about triathlon compared to uh to the the single discipline sport so if we for example take running as an example and we compare it to a typical marathon training program uh so what makes triathlon different even as uh, an, one endurance sport compared to how runners can train and and then if we take apart triathlon into just the run training of triathlon what makes that different from the marathon training program i mean if you talk to some of the professional athletes um they would say that you know really in the context of their actual you know fitness you know running in an ironman is is not that fast you know they're they're capable of running significantly quicker um what what the struggle is is the capacity to maintain you know sort of form turnover you know fueling um over over the race um and over the run portion of the race, you know, with having preceded it with the swim and the bike. And so that presents a unique complexity that is very different to training for a marathon. Um, and likewise, you know, very serious marathon trainers are, are typically doing, you know, two a days. And, and, you know, you can't really do that as a triathlete um, because you've got the swim and the bike to train as well. Yeah. Do, do you think that the crossover effect uh, there between the different disciplines help triathletes to get a lot out of uh, their potential in each discipline, despite not being able to put in anywhere near as much hours as a single sport athlete can do? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's strong evidence that, you know, a significant amount of volume on the bike, you know, that develops aerobic capacity, you know, carries over to the run, you know, but clearly what doesn't carry over is sort of resilience um from a biomechanical perspective um i would uh i would say that from a swim perspective probably the influence is a little bit less and that's just typically because the sheer volume of swimming that triathletes do is 
proportionally less than the biking. Yeah. But if you have somebody coming from a college swimming background where they have put in 20 plus hours per week of swimming, then potentially, then you do see these professional triathletes that come from that swimming background and very quickly becoming really good on the bike and potentially the run as well. Or, yeah, or because the they're, run, they're, yeah, the, the engine, the engine is developed. It's the capacity to express that. That is the, yeah. you know, is the limiter is, um, and I've seen that in, you know, athletes that have come from a run background or a swim background. So what, what are the ways that we can improve the capacity to express the, the engine? Perhaps let's say that you are maybe, maybe somebody who can't tolerate that much running because you're injury prone. Are there any tactics that you can employ in, uh, in, in training to, to improve that if you have a generally good engine, but you struggle with the run, for example? So if we're going to, yeah, I mean, that if the sort of the specific of that question is sort of, okay, if you're limited in the run, um, you know, then certainly you can offset some of that uh, limitation through um, doing more aerobic work on the bike. If you have the time available, if you don't have the time available, then, you know, I would say probably the most sort of important run session to do would probably be one that, that, that stresses your body you know and your muscles um with different contraction rates different force production rates um and and that really is you know running sort of you know trails or a little bit off-road on you know forest paths or um single track um and and you know not getting too hung up on the you know the intensity of that you know as as long as it's sort of comfortably aerobic you can sort of reasonably chat whilst you're doing it then there's a huge amount of benefits to that type of workout um so that that um, would be my pro- number one sort of go-to run workout if somebody said well you know i i need to kind of improve my ability to run well off the bike and uh, and if we take the question to the swim, because a lot of listeners probably have a, a, a good engine, a relatively good engine, but and potentially even they can do a pretty fast 400. But when it comes to a half Ironman or a full Ironman, then basically you just don't have the, the mus- muscular endurance to keep up a solid effort for the entire duration. What would be uh, a good go-to session for for working on that ability? So if you're talking about it purely in the context of sort of, you know, the muscular endurance, then I would say um, as boring as it is, you know, just just repetitive work where there is a moderate amount of load, um, you know, is, is really the best way to approach that. So, you know, like 10 by 100, um, 10 by 150, 10 by 200, you know, 6 by 400, those types of workouts which you know they're quite you know that's that's a fairly lengthy amount of swimming um and that you might build up to but the reality is is if you do that kind of workout and you're manipulating the recovery that you take and the intensity that you swim at then you know you can think about it that you're on on one side of the spectrum you've got sort of intensity and and maintaining swim speed you know, under load. And then at the other end, you've got, you know, just getting used to the duration of swimming and maintaining, you know, your form and your posture. So, 
you know, if you're if you're at that end of the spectrum, you know, then you might do those types of workouts uh, where you're doing a lot of repetition off a very short rest at moderate intensity. So you take just enough rest to kind of reset mentally and, you know, then you go again. Uh, whereas if you go at the other end of the spectrum, you might even go to the point of saying, okay, I'm going to do, you know, 10 by 100 and I'm going to swim, you know, the fastest pace that I can maintain for 1K, you know, because that's your 10 by 100. So, and then I'm just going to take whatever recovery I feel is reasonable for me to maintain that pace. And that, that might be 40 seconds. And that's fine. Um, and so then, you know, you've got those two sort of disparate approaches and and with time, you know, you might kind of move towards the middle of those two points and then, you know, move back out and move back in, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I want to go back to one point that you mentioned there with uh, the blocks uh, that you mentioned and uh, the first block being about the quality of, of movement. How do you incorporate that in sessions? What does that look like? So that would be where I might have people doing fairly sort of short and sharp running intervals um, where um, they're, they're working on, you know, their turnover and their posture, but but actually the length of the interval is such that it's not what you would class as a, you know, a, a highly demanding sort of cal- cardiovascular load. Um, on the bike, um, I, I firmly believe that, you know, the more, as the French would say, souplesse, that you can develop, you know, operating at different cadences, the, the more you improve your cycling ability. So, you know, just having athletes work at a, a wide range of, of cadence um, is another approach that I would take. Um, the swim, um, you know, not so much of a of an uh, an obvious workout or, or nature of a main set. You know, I might just do shorter, faster reps for individuals um, with a specific focus on say you know, swimming with a, with a snorkel um, so they can work on their alignment um, or and actually see what they're doing or, um, you know, doing uh, fast 25s, you know, breathing every three strokes, those kinds of things. Yeah. It was a bit of a leading question because um, I, I, of course, have been going through all of these <laughs> these things and recognize them. And, uh, and the one thing that I, I kind of uh, wanted to to make clear is that there hasn't been a lot of or any drill work uh, in the traditional sense of of that word but it's more about how to uh, how to break up the the session into for example in running those faster shorter intervals and that still allow you to to hold a good form and, and focus on turnover yeah, yeah and, I, and i think that's a key point i mean i think you know people just see swimming biking and running or you know within triathlon they just see it as you know these are aerobic sports you know you just you just need to get fit, you know, but, but actually, you know, your capacity to express that fitness is still a pretty key aspect. And I think when you think about, you know, as a, as any coach, when you think about improving somebody's ability to operate in the environment that they, they operate in, um, you're always looking to develop sort of situational awareness and, 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 you know, get them to use external cues. And, and I think a good example of this is, um, funny enough, I was um, walking past a, a kid's 
soccer training group the other day and our teenagers and and the coach was making them do all sorts of fancy footwork drills you know with a ball around cones and you know i would look at that and say okay well that you know that's interesting but you know all of that individual is thinking about is you know what they're doing with their feet whereas actually you know if you put an external stimulus in front of them and said okay well here's a defender that's going to sort of you know be constantly in your peripheral vision and move around and make you have to you know react then that external stimulus is going to create far greater learning patterns so um you know it's the same in it's the same in swimming when i'm giving an individual cues when i'm working with them face to face whether it's in the pool or um you know or in an endless pool or, or whether they've sent me video I'm trying to give them feedback that says, okay, well, you want to think about X or you want to think about Y such that their body has to figure out that movement pattern. So, you know, something, you know, if somebody has a lot of crossover in their stroke, I might say to them, think about, think about visualizing some railway tracks, you know, in the bottom of the pool and actually, you know, you're swimming down those railway tracks and your job is literally just to think about pulling down that railway track. Now, you know, because our proprioception in the pool is minuscule comparative to outside of the water, then even if your brain, you know, visualizes that railway track, just think about it with your left hand and, and really thinks that you're pulling in a perfectly straight line, the reality is you're not going to be pulling in a perfectly straight line. Um, but but what your body will be doing is it will be trying to figure out the sort of motor control patterns in order for you to create that movement pattern. Whereas if if we did some drill work and I said, you know, I want you to do this with your hand or this with your elbow, um, then all the brain is going to think about is that hand or that elbow and nothing else. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a ton of sense that uh, you put the the athlete in the in the situation that they need to perform rather than just having them focus on, on one single aspect uh, completely out of context. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, move on to the next topic and uh, discuss volume and intensity and how to balance the two, how you think about the two. Um, I don't think it's either or. I think there's always a balance to be found. As I said, I think some of the, the context of what I do is governed by the people that I work with. So I'm working with people that, that do train a sort of pretty you know, reasonable amount of time, you know, if not significant amount of time. And so there is a capacity for them to do, you know, a pretty, you know, significant amount of volume. Um, I mean, I think intensity, you know, I, I think I'd be remiss to not touch on it in the current context of the current climate and, and say that it's an interesting one where, you know, any coach at the moment should probably be thinking about, you know, well, you know, whether it's volume or intensity, how much immunosuppression am I creating in my athletes? And, you know, what things can we do to manage that um, more beneficially? So, you know, there's, there's, you know, evidence out there that, that shows that if you do intensity later in the day or even in the evening, then it has a more significant effect on the parasympathetic system. Um, and, you know, likewise, uh, are we building in enough recovery time, enough time for athletes to, you know, refuel appropriately when athletes are training full time and doing quite a significant amount of training, there can always be a danger that, 
you know, in between workouts, they don't take enough time to to refuel properly and rest properly. And that, you know, is more paramount in the current climate. Yeah, definitely. What what about in a normal situation, in normal world, when we at some point get back to that? How, yeah, that, I how think change your answer. I mean, I, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't really change my answer. I think um, you know people you know underestimate the benefit of appropriate recovery um, in the context of you know sleep, nutrition, timing of nutrition, all those things. Um, you know, they they vastly in, enhance performance. That's well documented, and so um, even for somebody that's training a limited number of hours, um, you know, there's there's definitely evidence that taking, you know, a pretty polarized approach to your training, you know, even if your training is as little as sort of eight, you know, eight hours a week, you know, still has its upsides. Um, you know, then, you know, if you throw into the mixing bowl that somebody might have a job, which is, you know, incredibly cognitively demanding, you know, that, that creates a unique, um, sort of periodization, um demand such that you know maybe during the week you know you you would do you know workouts which are not particularly cognitively demanding and then at the weekend you know you would then you know change that situation and, and go to something which is you know quite hard um where they're not distracted by sort of the day-to-day minutiae of work on that note something that we've discussed previously but not on a podcast is uh Something that you uh, you've described with a with a chart and uh, and a graph uh, that depicts the stress and the strain of different intensity levels of workouts. Perhaps you can go into that and explain that to the listeners. Yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, there's ways out there of measuring intensity that are you know that in, in that are sort of the, a measure of the mechanical work. So if we sort of simplify that and stick with the bike and say, okay, well, we can measure power, and we know. We know that you know certain training zones, you know, are certain ranges of power. So we know, you know, that your you know aerobic training zone, your endurance training zone, is from point A to point B. Um, then you know we uh, we need to understand that um, if you take those different zones, that sort of endurance zone, that sort of tempo zone, threshold zone, VO two zone, and anaerobic capacity. Um, if we take uh, a, a simple two-hour workout um, and make every single one of those two-hour sessions exactly the same in terms of the number of sort of kilojoules of work that you do, um, then when you calculate out this sort of training stress um, using sort of fairly typical workout structures, then then what you'll see is a bell curve, and and so what that's telling you is that the actual, for the same amount of strain, you know, overall for that workout, the stress is significantly higher in the middle of, in the, in the middle, around threshold. So, so whilst it might feel more satisfying to do, you know, lots and lots of sweet spot work, um, the reality is that the time that you need to recover from that, you know, is going to be more significant. So you can do the same amount of strain on your body by, you know, polarizing the training um, more so. And and that's not to say that sweet spot training is wrong because, you know, there's 
you know, there's definitely, you know, cyclists out there and cycling coaches that would argue vehemently against that. But again, I come back to we're not cyclists, we're triathletes. You know, there's two other sports that we need to train. And, you know, and there's two other sports that we need to recover from. Um, and, you know, then, you know, the other sort of interplay with volume and intensity is also understanding that when you have these training zones, um, that, you know, there is a range. And that range is contextualized by the amount of time that you spend in that range. So if you decide to do, you know, sort of a, a long endurance ride, then, um, then you, know, you w- I wouldn't want an athlete chasing after, you know, the, the top end of that range, you know, and feeling like, you know, a rock star for doing that, because actually it's probably better that they're at the lower end of that range. And likewise, if I only gave them an endurance ride, for an hour, then it would probably be better that they're at the top of that zone, um, because you know physiological adaptation is a, is a sort of somewhat a continuum. It's not like you know from one zone to the next. It's like a light switch goes off. Yeah, and, and just to explain that with the different two hour sessions, the the idea there would be that if you compare, for example, a a, a sweet spot session with a VO two max session yeah. that have the same amount of kilojoules. You basically, because you do a shorter duration of VO2 max work, let's say you do 10 by 2 minutes and sweet spot you do 4 by 15 minutes, then the adjustment there to make sure that the kilojoules is the same is that the time that you're not doing those actual work bouts is adjusted within the zone, within the zone 2 for the endurance segments or zone 1 for recovery segments so that kilojoules end up being the same. But then uh, on the other hand, hand, on the, the output, the training stress score if we use that metric will be higher for that sweet spot session yes then but that, that's an interesting thing and uh, again this is something we've discussed but uh, can you uh, talk about your your opinion on on how that sort of stress strain relationship what is it that drives adaptation because here we are trying to equalize the strain the kilojoules and then minimize the stress but what a lot of athletes do is they sort of chase a tss number they want to see that their training stress is maybe going up on a week by week basis so so in this modern world we kind of see that training stress often is seen rightly or wrongly as a driver of adaptation what's your thoughts on that um i think there's a danger in chasing metrics um you know if you if you chase metrics you know you can get very good at um you know, doing things that aren't necessarily a reflection of performance. Um, whereas, you, you know, you want to always be contextualizing the work that you do with some, you know, gauge of, of sort of capacity. So whether that's a particular workout that, you know, a coach or an athlete likes to revert to that, you know, is my, I'm going to do, you know, six times a hundred as hard as I can off a really short recovery. And, you know, if I can maintain those, you know, six efforts, you know, at a certain pace, you know, plus or minus a second or two, and, uh, and that's improving, uh, you know, over a couple of weeks, then clearly I'm getting better at swimming. Um, you know, my ability to maintain my swim stroke, um, or on the bike, it might be, you know, riding a certain route, or it might be doing, you know, a, a specific test I, I try not to get too hung up on the validity or or sort of lack of validity of certain tests or certain benchmarks because ultimately 
they're just a litmus of you know how is development how is the process developing um and so things like you know tss you know they're interesting um but it's just a metric it doesn't measure you know it doesn't it doesn't reflect uh, you know and and the founders of this would agree but it doesn't you know accruing a certain amount of tss doesn't reflect um you know how say a female athlete is coping with that you know given where they are in their cycle so there's there's lots of other aspects to sort of performance development that aren't um you know governed by metrics yeah so when you look at uh, your athletes and uh, you look back at uh, a training block of let's say a two or three week block what defines success well if you if the athlete achieved what you wanted them to achieve in in that week is it looking at certain key workouts like the six by 100 example and certain others or, or how how do you go about that sort of assessment um i think probably the 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 simplest assessment is ultimately how is the athlete finding the workouts um if the subjective feedback is that you know i i felt you know, I felt stronger in, in that session or, you know, I actually was able to maintain a better pace or, um, I didn't feel as tired as I felt last week. Um, that's probably the, the first, um, you know, assessment of success in that block of work. And second would be, you know, over a period of time, we might revert to some sort of benchmark assessment and go, right. Okay. Let's, let's actually validate you know, my process and my responsibility and my job as a coach to maximize your, your potential. And, and I think that's a key, key thing as a coach is, you know, we have to hold ourselves accountable. We're, I think saying, you know, the race is the test. Well, that's, that's like saying, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to a bank to get some money. Well, of course you're going to go to a bank to get some money. That's what a bank does. And it's the same with a coach. Coach's job is to make you good at racing. But um, uh, a really good coach's job is to, you know, maximize your potential through a process that's held accountable. Um, and so, you know, that that to me is the best way to check how those blocks are progressing is, you know, you benchmark along the way with certain workouts or certain tests or um, or races, you know, but ultimately you're always trying to, you know, calibrate the usefulness of the training process. Yeah, makes sense. Then what about workout prescription? How do you like to prescribe workouts? What sort of measures of intensity do you prefer to use and uh, what are some pros and cons of uh, different options i mean pace pace power heart rate perception of effort they all have their place they all have their their you know their their unique uh, qualities um if i want people to do a very specific amount of work i might be very uh, specific with what i prescribe if i want to um get the athlete to really you know focus on self calibrating because there are definitely athletes that are like hey coach tell me what to do and I'll execute you know I'll execute 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 and it's like no 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 I I don't want you to be a robot 
I don't, you know, that's, that's a really key thing is um, I want you to understand philosophically what we're trying to achieve out of this workout. So there may be specific workouts where I say, okay, I want you to do the intervals at this intensity and I'd use a word for argument's sake, VO2. Um, and then I'm, I'm interested to see what that, you know, what that, you know, equates to over, uh, over a period of time in an athlete, you know, what do they do that? How does that relate to the previous few days of training? Um, you know, another approach is to actually, um, you know, with, with athletes that I have, you know, I've been working with for some time, I, I tend to give them a little bit, even more, even more autonomy. Um, and it's a little bit fun as a coach and then not to make athletes feel paranoid. And you probably, you can speak, you can speak to this. Um, but I might give a specific workout where I say, I want you to go for a run for this amount of time. Yeah. And that's it. And, and <laughs> that's the, that's the depth of my coaching in that one session. But the key thing as a coach there is I want to see what you do with that time. Um, and sometimes athletes are a bit cheeky and they might go out and crush it. And a lot of times they might take a deep breath and go, I think I'm just going to take a really easy aerobic run. Um, and that, that's a very powerful sort of learning tool for me as a coach and learning tool for an athlete um, is, you know, sometimes give yourself the autonomy. You know, if you're not coach, sometimes don't get hung up on, on, on the workout detail, you know, see how you feel, um, but then track what that then looks like over a period of weeks. Mm. yeah that makes sense and uh strength and conditioning uh, that's uh another topic that i'd like to get into a bit what, what are your thoughts on that what kind if any of strength and conditioning do you think is uh useful and valuable for triathletes i think i think strength and conditioning is definitely a sort of pillar of performance um it's it, it's something that uh, you know many many athletes should be doing now you know there's people that rally against it and say you know, well, what if I'm time limited? What if I've only got eight hours a day that I can, sorry, a week that I can train? Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some compromises to be had. You know, do athletes that uh, want to perform to the best of their ability, do they, do they need to be spending 10, 15 minutes a couple of times a week doing some um, sort of prehabilitative movement patterns or some exercises that they can do, you know, at home on their own, you know, with, you know, things that you find in the home, you know, yes, I would, I would argue quite strongly for that. Um, you know, ultimately at the very pointy end, the coming back to that point earlier about, you know, creating the ability for athletes to express the cardiovascular potential that they have. What I, what I, you know, what I persistently see in top performers, um, is this, um situation of having an engine that can out talk the chassis um you know that th they're they're so cardiovascularly fit but they don't actually have the sort of stability uh you know to to express that fully over a long period of time you know can they sit on the bike and ride really smoothly in a really really good aero position you know that maybe impacts on you know, a little bit on their breathing mechanics, um, you know, have they adapted to that really well? Or are they constantly needing to sit up? 
Um, likewise on the run, you know, can they maintain, you know, a, you know, a strong leg drive, you know, and uh, a good, good upright posture, sort of chin up, chest up um, over a long period of time. And, um, you know, that's what drives then how I would guide people in, in using strength and conditioning, that it's very much about um, helping them, you know, maintain good posture and good form. Now, you know, you can come at that from, you know, actual, you know, in situ swimming and, you know, in situ biking and in situ running. Um, but I still think there's a place for doing it, you know, separate to those three sports. Um, because it, what, it can only help. Yeah. And, and if you have an athlete that's uh, training, let's say that uh, lower end of your, uh, your bunch of athletes, which would be 15, 16, 17 hours, what would a typical amount of strength and conditioning be in a week? Would they do a couple of sessions in the gym or would it be more home-based? I mean, it depends on the individual. I've got some individuals where, you know, they just they don't have the time to travel to a gym or there isn't a gym nearby. And so, you know, with you know with you know not an unreasonable amount of investment they can have you know they can set up a home gym and get you know a good amount of exercises done um but that would look something like three times half an hour now you know there are there are people that might rally against that and say well you know my my concern is you know i'm gonna you know i'm gonna i'm gonna build muscle um if I could make people muscular off three times half an hour in a week, um, I'd be an exceptionally rich person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there'd be an awful lot of strength and conditioning coaches that would hate me. Um, you know, the reality is you're not going to create hypertrophy off three 30 minute workouts a week that are predominantly stability orientated. Yeah. And speaking of the, predominantly being stability orientated what is your take on actually lifting some more weights doing doing higher weights maybe the the high weight low rep protocols that we have seen quite a lot recently in, in research yeah there's there's yeah i mean that research is good it, you know it shows that um you know you can definitely improve running economy through doing sort of olympic lifts um i, I think the context that I would look at there is it depends on the individual and the amount of muscle mass that they have. Um, because somebody that is, um, um, uh, you know, has a lot more muscle mass, maybe, uh, you know, a male athlete, you know, that isn't, you know, built like a, a marathon runner. So just to pick two examples, you know, um, Jan Fredino and, um, uh, Lionel Sanders. You know, I, I I can talk in the context of Lionel, and I, I don't know what Jan does in terms of strength and conditioning, um, but I'm just looking at those two body types. Um, somebody with a larger muscle mass would would be predisposed to lift more iron, and so the 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 risk there is that you actually create fairly significantly larger amounts of stress on the body by doing some olympic lifting than you would ideally want um whereas somebody that you know doesn't lift as much weight may benefit uh, benefit more from doing those olympic lifting movements um 
that's a sort of simplistic look at it. But I, you know, again, it comes back to physics. Um, somebody that can walk into a gym and, and comfortably deadlift 200 pounds without breaking a sweat as a triathlete because of their sort of morphology um, is clearly going to cause more stress on the, you know, their musculature than somebody that, you know, would only be deadlifting a hundred pounds. Yeah, that, that makes sense. The same reason that uh, elite sprinters, for example, uh, sprint very, very little in, in training. Uh, yeah. It's just so so demanding, so stressful when when you have that capacity to 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 cause such a large amount of, of energy turnover in, in a short amount. Yeah, of time. and that's particularly because they're operating at the very end ranges of movement. So that's re- you know that's real recipe for disaster type situation because. You know, in swimming, biking, and running, and triathlon, we're not really operating at the end ranges of movement. Um, you know, you might argue that maybe in the swim, um, and that's why, you know, I would vehemently argue against athletes, you know, using big paddles um, because a, you know, their swim stroke is almost certainly not technically competent enough to cope with those paddles, and b, you know, they're then operating at their end ranges of movement. You know, and that's a recipe for loads that you know joints, tendons, ligaments, muscles can't cope with. Mm. All right. Uh, so uh, the next topic that I have here is: uh, Can you just discuss your view on the fundamentals of training and uh, what are uh, what are the dangers and the potential pitfalls of uh, getting stuck with the minutia and uh, even in hype and fads that you see in uh, the current day and age in triathlon? Yeah, I, I think triathlon training, you know, requires a, a fairly significant amount of doing the basics right. You know, doing just solid aerobic work, um, then getting into you know, specific developmental needs um, can be driven by you know the the race, uh, the races that an athlete has coming up, um, or the terrain that they'll be racing on, or the environment that they'll be racing in from a thermal perspective. Um, you know, those are those are some some minutiae that you that you can um, uh, sort of f- focus on. Um, but there is nothing from a training perspective, you know, when you, you see, you know, things that are hyped that, you know, this is going to improve your VO2 max by 5%. No, it's not. There is, you know, there's, there's multiple coaches in multiple sports that if we, if we, if there was something that has been in existence that would allow us to add 5% to people's VO2 max, um, that isn't pharmacological, um, we'd have been doing it for a very long period of time. Yeah. Short and sweet. That makes sense. Um, and one final thing before we go on to what will be part two of uh, of this interview, which will be available for the listeners next week. But but I want to go back to the topic of periodization a little bit because you mentioned working in in the different blocks with the quality of movement and the more intensity uh, and uh, and then what did you say that the third theme was that you had there? Race sort of race specific. Right. Yeah. So is that uh, is that sort of coming from the Isurin work from the traditional block periodization, or is it more something that you've adapted? Um, it's it's definitely 
evolution of Isserin's work, but it's also contextualizing it with the you know the, the sport that we work with, the demands of of it being um, three different sports within one, the you know the reality of of periodization as we know and understand as written about by John Keeley more recently. Um, so I'm really trying to you know move into sort of a, a preparation phase there for the race where you know athletes are, are familiarizing themselves with you know paces and power and speeds um, that they you know they intend to operate at in the race. Right. Yep. And uh, then the question that uh, that I want to ask is: Can you give an example, and it might be real or hypothetical, of how you apply that sort of periodization to to a season with an athlete? So uh, uh, I'm guessing that uh, that you're basically just cycling through those three mesocycles, so a training stage, if you want to call it that. But and you said that, of course, and this is where the racing calendar comes in and the context of it all but that's why if you can give an example of what it might look like for a specific athlete with maybe a couple of goal races uh, in different parts of the year yeah i mean it, it is as simple as, as that you know if an athlete says okay well within within the next 12 months the most important race for me is this race and you go okay right well uh we know when that race is we know that for argument's sake we are 27 weeks away from that race we know that in order for you to achieve what you want to achieve that we uh need for you to be in a certain level of um physical fitness at that race um so you know our goal orientation for want of a better phrase is this you know this pace or this uh this power or this speed and You know, we know where we are now, so we do a basic gap analysis, and then we say, right, well, you know, as a consequence, you know, we've got 27 weeks to get from A to B, or, um, you know, is actually, you know, that an unreasonable expectation, or if it is a reasonable expectation, you know, where do we need to be in, you know, nine weeks? Where do we need to be in 18 weeks? You know, and then uh, and making sure that we're checking along the way. You know, are we ticking the boxes on what we're doing in order to achieve those benchmarks that that you know that allow us to know that we're on the right road to achieving the performance that we want to achieve? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, and then within each of those blocks, the the type of work that is done is sort of fairly similar and repetitive. That being the the sort of the gist of it all that you're repeating work and you're getting a sort of slightly more concentrated workload that you might do if you just mix and match different training types so that uh, you adapt to that? Is that how you think about um, it? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, uh, not to state the obvious, but, you know, if I'm trying to sort of develop sort of somebody's sort of VO2 within that intensity phase over three discrete periods, um, you know, there's there's not going to be lots of, you know, sexy variation to to workouts um you know across those three discrete blocks you know it's going to be fairly similar because it kind of does what it says on the tin and you know that's the reality of of training for performance is you know you need to do the basics right and you need to do them well 
Um, and so it would be, you know, it would be very similar in those discrete blocks. Um, there might be some subtle differences, but nothing earth shattering. Um, and that, and that's not because I'm not being dismissive of the need to ensure that athletes are, you know, sort of engaged and, and motivated and enjoying the training. And that's where, you know, the level of autonomy that I may or may not give an athlete, um, comes into play where I know with some athletes, if I say in this context of this example, I need you to do four times four minutes at this intensity, they're like, yep, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to crack on with that and then somebody else i might say you know actually you know we need to do this amount of work 16 minutes of work and you know you you can have this amount of recovery and as long as you maintain you know the work rest recovery ratio you can slice that up as you see fit and and i give them the autonomy to drive that based on how they feel um and and that's much more motivating for other people yeah perfect and uh, and let's say you have somebody who's racing a bit more you can then basically add one of those training stages in between the two races let's say for argument's sake here that you have nine weeks between the two races and then yeah and absolutely basically just add one of those stages in between and repeat the cycle again yeah and absolutely like i said sort of earlier on you know it's not as rote as you know nine weeks and three by three weeks and you must do this and you can only race on these weekends you know there is <clears throat> there is subtle shifts where those blocks may only be two weeks long now as an example let's talk about the current climate um i had a discussion with one of my professional athletes this morning where i said you know this is what we do this is what we've always done you know but the reality is i want you to stay you know engaged and present and motivated and so you know, we're actually going to do shorter blocks of work and we're going to make sure that we manage sort of recovery and intensity, um, you know, uh, um, so, you know, so that we don't get too carried away. Um, and, you know, that uh, that would then create an, a situation that would allow us to pivot into a race-specific block a lot easier than if we were doing sort of, you know, a long phase of development on a particular thing and then all of a sudden you know in six weeks we discover there's a race that we need to do in two weeks and it's like oh well you know hang on a minute we've been working on this development phase for the last eight weeks that doesn't fit well um you know you need to create some flexibility um Mm. does that make sense it does yeah yeah totally and uh, that's a perfect place, I think, to wrap up this particular episode, the perspectives on training. And we will be back next week with uh, your thoughts on coaching, which will be really interesting because it will be the first episode on the podcast that is really directed to to coaches in particular, although I think that athletes also will find it very useful. So uh, we'll see you in a m- minute. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com and I will link to David's other episodes in the show notes and in the episode description as well as a link to his uh, appearance on Lionel Sanders' YouTube channel which uh, we alluded to a bit and to obviously the usual suspects, his website and social media profile. 
Next Monday, we will have part two of this interview. So make sure you tune in for that. In particular, if you are a coach, that will be something that should give a lot of food for thought. If you have been a long-time listener, listener of the podcast and you haven't left, yet left a rating and review, uh, please consider taking a couple of minutes out of your busy schedule to do so because that's one of the best ways to help spread the show and uh, help new listeners find us, which at the end of the day helps sponsors come back to us and keep the, the show going because it is a, a serious commitment in time and money so we need those sponsors really and we need to keep the show growing otherwise it uh, will eventually die out and i really don't want that so rating and reviewing on apple podcasts or itunes or wherever you can rate and review it if you're using some different app that has a different system do it wherever it's possible uh, and i am grateful for for everything you can do in that regard and of course spread it with your friends and uh, frenemies in triathlon Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test and get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. That's where you can get a 20% discount code for your entire order, whether you're going for wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, or prescription glasses or sunglasses. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving traffic.